Again, if you have a Bible, uh, in da- we'll be looking at Daniel chapter 2. Last week we looked at Daniel chapter 1. We're just going to go through uh, you know, the beginning of Daniel and look at his story, um, and what's going on there, and what we can learn from that about who God is and how we walk in exile. As I mentioned, uh, you know, today we're remembering or we remember the tragedy of, of September 11th, 2001. And, you know, if, as we saw those planes and what they were doing on that day, there was a sense that something had gone wrong. Because that is not what planes were supposed to do. And as we saw buildings full of people collapse, there was a sense that something had gone wrong. Because that's not what buildings are supposed to do. And in that we thought about the loss and we thought about what happens next and how do we go on from here. And in many ways that event changed much of our lives and posture here in the States. And as Christians we are reminded that this is not our home. That we are not home. This is not the promised kingdom of God yet. We are in exile. And this week on September 8th, we also saw the passing of Queen Elizabeth. And while she was 96 and reigned for 70 years, we are reminded again that this is not our home. That our bodies were not created originally to decay. That we are in exile. And in both of these things, our hearts long for an eternal kingdom that will never fail. In a created world where planes do not crash, where buildings do not collapse, where our bodies do not decay and fragment and give way. And we know that there will be another day, as real as September 11th and as real as September 8th, when our king will return and make all things new. And so in our groaning for that day, How are we to live in this day? How do we respond to danger, to decay, to need, and the brokenness that has been brought into the world by our sin? So let's be clear, though. Daniel chapter 2 is not about September 11th. But it is about the God who goes with us in our exile, in our wilderness journey through a land of tragedy and loss. Throughout the New Testament, we hear the writers refer back to the posture and actions of the children of Israel in the wilderness. And while the main point of the story of the Bible and of the children of Israel in the wilderness points to the providence and sovereignty of God and Jesus who will be the true and better nation of Israel, we are also meant to see the behavior and response of the children of Israel and learn how not to respond in times of trial. We see in the book of Hebrews and especially in chapter 3 in the New Testament that the church is reminded to not, again, to not respond to God the way the children of Israel did in the Exodus. So while all of Scripture points us to the work of God, Scripture also that is breathed out by God is good for training us in righteousness in the already as we wait for the not yet. So today in Daniel chapter 2, we hear an overarching message that man's kingdom is temporary while God's is eternal. And so we walk in the valleys of exile with hope and with confidence. 
And we see that we can learn from the posture of Daniel as he lives in exile, as he walks in the wilderness. We see how God's people are meant to face and respond to the circumstances of a world in decay and loss. So I want to read again as a church, Daniel chapter 2, 20 through 23. And again, this is Daniel's song and psalm of praise to God's providence in the midst of a very challenging situation in Daniel's life. And so even today, we'll probably read it three times in total. If, if you, all you do is walk out of here is, is the echo of this psalm of Daniel, of, Dan, Daniel, of Daniel, that is enough. But let's read here again, Daniel chapter 2, verses 20 through 23. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Let's pray. Father God, as we come before you and we look at Daniel chapter 2, God, we know that it is ultimately and always and continually pointing to you, the one who went with Daniel. And so, Father, as, as we listen, as we think on these things, as we consider these things, Father, our hearts are stirred not towards a man, but stirred towards you. Thank you for your breathed out word May we hear it. That is, may we listen, may we live ways that would obey these things. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent in love so that we could know you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this in all things. Amen. So today we'll look at three things. The impossible request, the merciful answer, and the stone of power and wisdom. So the impossible request, the merciful answer, and the stone of power and wisdom. So first, the impossible request. So in our country, here in the United States, we have an elected democracy. And that elected democracy has really, really short terms of power to which they are elected. And so doesn't it seem that as soon as someone is elected to our government, the goal of them is then to figure out how to keep their power. So promises of what they'll do, they get elected, and then like, okay, how do I keep the power? It is less about what is wise and more about what policies and moves will secure the power and their party's power for the next term. And again, listen, if you're new here, this... <laughs> This is not normal where I just talk about the United States government. Like, but I am not talking about any one particular party either. But rather, commenting on the anxiety of having power and how that affects our wisdom in our decisions. And here's why I bring this up. In Daniel chapter 2 verse 1. Read this with me. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his, his sleep left him. So here we have, we have King Nebuchadnezzar. He was probably, you know, 
one of the most powerful men that ever lived. And I don't mean that by, you know, he was strong and he could lift all sorts of heavy weights. Or I don't mean that uh, he, he had, you know, these huge aircraft carriers and could cause damage. What I mean by is he had the unilateral power that we don't see anymore. And for good reason. <laughs> he had unilateral power to make decisions and decrees and everybody just had to obey them. There was no checks and balances in Nebuchadnezzar's life and he had uh, the rule and reign over a very powerful nation of that time. So here you have one of the most powerful men that ever walked the earth as in governmental power and political power. And he has a dream, and he can't sleep. Again, he would have access to anything he ever needed or wanted. His riches would have been beyond any other human. Yet our chapter begins with him being troubled. This dream that troubled this powerful king so much that he can't even sleep, we can assume that he knew that it was foreboding. That is, that it had a heavy meaning. And for a king like Nebuchadnezzar, who actively engaged in expanding his kingdom and power, so again, we know even with Judah, so what he's trying to do is get more of his kingdom for himself. He's continually trying to get, I need more, I need more, I need more. So for a king like that, you can imagine a dream that seemed to imply imperfection would keep you up at night. The king cannot rest when it appears his kingdom may be in danger and decay. When it appears that his power is in jeopardy. And so he can't sleep. Because his whole identity and his whole life seems like in this dream may be at risk. So he calls all of his wise men to get help. Now if you called Listen, if we brought a bunch of six-year-olds, six-year-olders, I I don't know what the plural there is, but if you brought them all up on stage and I told them, hey, if I give you, I I promise you, I will give you uh, the biggest candy bar. If you can just tell me what my dream meant and I tell them the dream, I guarantee you that they will have some answers to my question. They'll be able to interpret my dream. They'll say, oh, okay, yeah, here's a candy bar, right? Yeah, okay, here's what your dream meant. And they will give me an answer if I ask them with, with that. And, and I guarantee you that their answer will be an answer that won't offend me. They'll only say, oh yeah, uh, your dream means you're, you're a hero and you're awesome and where's my candy bar? But that's not what King Nebuchadnezzar knows, does because he knows better. Because he doesn't just want them to interpret his dream. He wants them to do what wise men cannot just make up for their own benefit. He tells them that he needs them to also let him know what the actual dream was. That is beyond them. They cannot just make up something because they will immediately be found out as a fraud. And look at verse 10 of Daniel chapter 2. Look what it says. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. So they say, king, this is crazy. There's no man that can meet this demand. And then they continue to speak wisdom 
in verse 11 when they say this, the thing that the king asks is difficult. Yes, you are absolutely correct. And no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So king, the request you're making is impossible for man. Only the gods can give that kind of wisdom. However, they don't dwell in flesh. So what are we supposed to do? So then king, you must not ask this thing of us men. And in this opening, we see that the king that we see King Nebuchadnezzar afraid of losing his power, and we see his counselors afraid of being exposed for their lack of wisdom come to a very important realization. So far in Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man possibly that ever walked the earth as far as political power, and his wise men come to this realization. They need something that only, for them, a God can do. And King Nebuchadnezzar responds in fear that led to anger by making a decree that all the wise men in Babylon be killed. He is angry at the realization that he cannot find rest without power and wisdom that is beyond his reach. Even with all of his resources of the wisest men in the world and his armies, he cannot give his spirit peace. And in the king's decree, the wise men find that because they do not have the access to the revelation of God and wisdom of God, they are to be destroyed. They are all doomed without the revelation of, for them, again, of the gods. Because Babylon was a pagan kingdom. That is, it, that is, it believed in many gods, gods that they had created and made images of. King Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, was troubled because he knew that his dream was given to him and it had meaning. And he didn't want to simply be assured by man. He wanted to know the truth of the gods that gave him this dream and what they were trying to communicate to him. So the pagan wise men speak from their own wisdom because their gods are false and they do not reveal truth to them. So they cannot give transcendent wisdom. And so these wise men in Daniel chapter 2 cannot speak to anything higher than their own understanding. And in both circumstances, with the king's spirit and the wise men's lack of wisdom, the solution cannot be found in themselves. And that creates the chaos of the kingdom of man. When man realizes that at the end of the day, they are powerless to do what needs to be done. Chaos reigns. And fear leads to panic and to anger. Secondly, the merciful answer. I'm going to read Daniel chapter 12 through 14 here. Because the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed, so the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. So he responds. So again, the decree, the order... Now, this, again, remember, this would not work in any of our modern nations, right? Kings and presidents and prime ministers just don't make these decrees, hey, kill all these people. But here, Nebuchadnezzar, in his power, kill all the wise men. 
And the pagan wise men who's hopeless in themselves are in a state of panic, but Daniel responds to his executioner differently. It says that Daniel responded with prudence and discretion. And remember, this is a boy. I mean, this is a boy. We don't know how old, but I mean, this is, this is Ethan Barker. Like, this is a boy responding to an executioner in a foreign land. His parents in prudence and discretion. Daniel's posture and response is because he is not a pagan. His prudence and discretion is because he's not a pagan. How easily Daniel could have fallen apart like the pagan wise men or the children of Israel in the wilderness who ran to pagan idols when they were afraid. He could have said, I have been sent into this exile and God delivered me and gave me favor through the food trial in chapter 1 and then giving me wisdom to gain favor and now this. I have been rescued for nothing. God, you brought us all the way out here to let us die. But that's not how Daniel responds. Not in this wilderness testing. What did Daniel do? He did not panic. He responded with prudence. And we see that his courage in the face of death is not because Daniel is our hero. We have to continually say this. Daniel is not our hero. Our hero is why Daniel responds the way he responds. Because there is a true and better hero. He's not the one who should be on our walls. It is because Daniel is a child of God that he's able to respond this way. And he remembered it as he's staring. Again, don't miss this. This wasn't like he heard a rumor. His executioner is staring him in the face. The only way a boy responds to his executioner in prudence, like for me, I'd want to fly. I'd want to run. The only way a boy can do that is he has something under, behind, above, and with him that is far greater than an executioner in the land of man. This is vital for us. The truth about the eternal God is meant to transform the way we respond to temporary trials. It is meant to be applied to our daily lives. When we say you're a child of God, it's not just some, oh, that's fun, that's, 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 that's nice, it makes me feel good about things. The fact that you are a child of God allows you to stand in the trial and say, it's okay, I am loved. Daniel did not read in the scriptures, he did not face Arioch, his executioner, and say, okay, what am I supposed to do? And then he was able to turn back to the, the Pentateuch or, or, or the Scriptures or what he had heard spoken to him uh, through or, the oral tradition. He was not saying, okay, okay, I know there was this story in the Exodus where somebody was faced by an executioner and their name was Arioch, and this is what you're supposed to do. Daniel did not find that. Instead, he saw a posture of how a child of God is meant to respond. What Daniel knew from God's revelation is that when God's people are in need, they go to Him and they seek wisdom. We have to see what saves Daniel's life here because he is helpless to save himself. 
he comes to the same conclusion that the other wise men came to. The thing that he has been asked to do is impossible for man. But what Daniel, as a child of the true and living God, who is in a relationship with him, would do is seek direct intervention of God himself. And so Daniel goes back to his place. And he doesn't run back to his place to grumble and complain. He doesn't go back to his boys and say, Ugh, like, what, what, like I, you'll not believe the day I've had. I, somebody came to kill me today. Oh, and they're going to come kill you. He doesn't come and grumble and complain to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What does he do? He comes to his community, to his fellowship, and the other children of God, and the other exiles there in the land of man, and he says, we must pray. Pray to God for his mercy, that he would reveal these things. If we look at, again, in 20... Verses, uh, or chapter 2, verse 20 and 23, we get this thing that we've already read twice. This right, so, so Daniel gets a response from God. And then Daniel uh, has this psalm of thanksgiving. And if you read that psalm, you, you see that what he's thanking God for is what? Power or, or, or wisdom and might or power. So he's saying, thank you God for your wisdom and for your power that you have given me these things. You've revealed these things because without you I was hopeless because no man can answer this king's request. It is an impossible request. Thank you for your intervention. Blessed be your name forever and ever. Daniel rightly sees and knows that God is sovereign and above all things. The worship of Daniel is meant to remind us the first Remind us, uh, remind the first audience, sorry, of this book and meant to remind us as his church in 2022 who is worthy of our focus. So when we read this Psalm of Daniel in chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, it is meant to remind us that Daniel is not the hero and will continually say this. Daniel did not consider himself the hero. At the center of this chapter, we have a psalm where Daniel says, in case you don't understand, those of you who are reading, in case you don't understand why I'm able to respond this way, in case you don't understand, let me just be clear. It is because I am a child of the living God who gives power and wisdom. Again, we must not forget that. Not in his story and not in our story. When Daniel responds to his executioner with prudence and calmness, again, it is a song of worship. Daniel shows the worth of his God when he stands in the face of Arioch and responds. It is a testimony of God, the source of his power. And so we read this story about the child of God living in exile. Our hearts are stirred to worship of our God who goes with us in the wilderness. Meaning we do not have a spirit of fear and panic when things are bigger than our power and harder than our wisdom. Instead, we respond by going to the source in prayer and in worship. This is our encouragement in our exile. Go to God. 
I know, I, like if you've been in church any length of time, you may, that may sound, you may almost be numb to that. Like go to God in prayer. Like it's almost at this point, like small talk that we use. Well, I'm going to pray about that. I'm going to pray about that. Like I, I would encourage you, I would encourage you to go to, to God in prayer like Daniel probably went to pray, in prayer on that day with his companions. Seeing the impossibility that you're not sovereign, that you can't control things. But Daniel's worship does not end in a song or a poem written in private. He takes his worship public and goes into the king's court. In verse 26 of Daniel chapter 2, the king asks him if he is able to make his dream known. So picture this scene. You got, you've got this decree. You've got this angry king who may not be sleeping, who maybe hasn't slept. So you have this angry king, most powerful king, uh, and, you're in, and here's this little boy walking in to see the king, and uh, you have maybe the, execute, the captain of the guard, maybe Arioch is standing off to the side, and here Daniel comes in to the king, and the king says, again, the king has already said, you die. You and all the wise men die. But okay, I'll grant this appointment. So in walks Daniel, and the king says, okay, can you do what I've asked you to do? That is, can you reveal what the dream was? And then can you interpret it? And I don't think Daniel's being a smart aleck here. I think he's being, he, this is a worshipful response. What does he say? I can't do it. And I'm sure at that moment, Arioch, the captain of the king's execution guard, is saying, what? I, what? Dan? Don't talk to the king like that. Tell him you can do this. But that's not what Daniel says. He says, I can't do this. No man can do this. And I, thank goodness, I don't know where Ariok was standing, that he wasn't standing close. Again, I don't know this for sure. <laughs> but like, if I, like, because Daniel might have lost his head before he could finish the sentence. Like, Daniel, don't play games. What does he say? I can't do this. No man can do this, king. He rightly responds. And then he says, but God... There's a God in heaven who can reveal these things. So in other words, in that moment, again, Daniel could have gone for himself. He could have figured out, oh, listen, God has given me power. Let me use that power for me then to get power. And maybe he could have made some sort of deal where he said, God, if you give me power, I'm going to use it really well. So I'm going to go before the king and I'm going to do this thing. And boy, that'll be good for, for your kingdom if you give me power. Daniel refuses that. He says, no, like, I can't do this either. It's not because I'm wise that I know these things. I'm not better than another person. He says, but I am a child of God, and God has revealed these things to me. A God in heaven. And so, in this response, in the land of man's kingdom, when this boy Daniel could have made himself known, instead, in the public court, he made God known. Thirdly and finally, the stone of power and wisdom. So in the dream, we see this image, and if you've not read the entire narrative, I just encourage you uh, after church or sometime this week, just read the entire narrative of Daniel chapter 2. But in this dream, we see this image that has, been, uh, uh, that, that is, that has this note of degradation. Let me, let me just read it, uh, just to get us all on the same page. Daniel chapter 2, 36 through 38. 
This was the dream. So here's Daniel telling the king what God has revealed to him. Now we will tell the king the interpretation. Verse 37, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he's given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven, making you rule over all of them. So it starts with, uh, with, with, with uh, Daniel in his interpretation saying, listen, you need to understand that all, everything you have is given to you. And I realize now I'm reading the interpretation, not the dream. Let me go back and read the, the dream. So Daniel tells uh, 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 the dream to, to King Nebuchadnezzar here in verse uh, 34. Sorry, it doesn't start there. 33. 32. The head of his image was fine gold. So he sees an image. The head of, was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver. And so in the, in the King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, there's an image. Its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and, the part, and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not, to tr not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel tells him the dream, and there's the dream, and then he goes into an interpretation. And what we have to understand again is, as we talk about this is that, that in these metals, as he's talking about this, it starts with gold and it goes all the way down through iron and through clay and through mixed clay, is that there is a continual fragmentation or a continual decay in this image. And as we know, and we talked about on Wednesday night, when we were talking about the, the doctrine of what God has revealed about man, is that all of, all of creation, because of sin, has been subject to decay. As Romans 8 says, Paul says uh, that all creation has been subjected to futility or decay. And so we see that even in this great image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. We see decay, we go from gold, and we continue to go down and down and down and down. And now listen here, there, let's, be, let's be good at hermeneutics this does not talk about, this image is not trying to get you to say, okay, the, the gold was Babylon, and then this was this, and then this was this, this was this. That is not in there. And so we ought not to say, okay, I know what all of those kingdoms are. That God has not revealed those things. What we know is that the head was King Nebuchadnezzar, right, in Babylon. And then there was this decay. And then what we know is that a stone came that was not cut by human hands, and it crashed all of it, and it became a great mountain, and then it grew. And what we're also able to see in this dream is that the path for the children of Israel and God's people was not going to be one of simply conquering Babylon and then living happily ever after. Instead, it would be one of learning how to live a life of faithfulness and dependence on God while living in exile. That is, the journey and the trials of the wilderness will continue long after Babylon collapses. That there will be more decaying kingdoms of man that will replace Babylon. And this is what we know for us today, that we are also living in exile from our true home. And that is not going to end in an election or in an economic rebound. So then, while we desire for our countries and nations to see peace and prosperity, we know that these things are not our hope and we will never find true rest in the kingdom of man. Again, we know that all of creation and our bodies are subjected to decay. So while we groan, we do it with confidence because King Nebuchadnezzar's dream has more to reveal 
than the futility of man's kingdoms. Look what else it says. Back to the dream. We know that there's a stone that will come. 234. There was a stone that was not cut by human hand. It struck the image, broke it to pieces. And then the stone will become a great mountain and it will fill the entire earth. So, let's think carefully. There will be a stone that was not cut by human hands that will smash the kingdoms of men and then grow into a great mountain and that will fill the entire earth. And if you've been here for the past six weeks, you already know where this is going. Do not miss what this is ultimately pointing to. Because around 600 years after King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, a young engaged girl would be visited by an angel of God and told that she would have a son. And this son would not be cut from human hands. It would be a virgin birth. And we know that this son would grow to be the cornerstone on which the church and God's kingdom are founded and built, all for the sake of filling the entire earth with his glory, that it would be fruitful and multiply, that it would become the great mountain. That it would go and make disciples and fill Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the world with this king's presence. Jesus Christ is the rock that was not cut by human hands and who would become the rock of our salvation and the cornerstone of God's eternal and expanding kingdom. And remember how Daniel 2 began. King Nebuchadnezzar was then able to find rest and his, and his wise men unable to find wisdom. They all came to the right conclusion that they would need divine intervention. However, it was hopeless for them because the gods do not dwell with the flesh. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we are convinced that on 9-11 our biggest problem was airport screening, then we will arrive at temporary solutions. And while those solutions are helpful, they care. Then while those are good steps, they can only delay the inevitable. So we must first see the problem that is under and behind violent acts against others and even peaceful death surrounded by loved ones. We must come to the conclusion that we are without hope of finding rest in ourselves. That we are powerless and lack the wisdom to do more than create temporary solutions to a problem that is eternal. And so when we come to that conclusion that our sin has set us on the course of, towards death, we can then look beyond the temporary and seek something beyond us. So God sent Jesus, the Son of God, to dwell in the flesh, to die for us so that we could find eternal life. This gospel is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. And this Jesus, who is the rock of our salvation, is our wisdom from God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 And because of him you, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So then we can find rest in a lifetime of exile because our power and wisdom is in Christ and it is secure. And see how this ends. The dream is certain and the interpretation is sure. That's how Daniel ends it. This dream is certain, King. The interpretation is sure. The stone that became a mountain is not a temporary solution. It cannot and will not be lost or overthrown. So then, we can respond to those who come in fear with a confidence that does not make sense to those who are trying to find power and wisdom 
in themselves. Okay. I want to finish today uh, by talking about our hope, our future. For Daniel, we can say, well, God has given him these interpretations and has revealed to him what is to come and so he can live with confidence in his exile. Easy for Daniel to say. Of course, Daniel sang this song of worship in chapter 2, verse 20 through 23. God revealed these things to him and it saved his life. And he knew that Babylon would fall because as it said, the dream is certain and it is, its interpretation is true. But again, Daniel's ultimate problem was not an earthly king and his executioner. Again, while his death was delayed, Daniel would eventually die. And so Daniel and us need an eternal revelation from God. Church, look what God has revealed to us in his word. Because 700 or so years after Daniel prayed to God and received this merciful wisdom, a man named John went to an island and had a vision from God and wrote it down for us today to be encouraged. Okay, if you have a Bible. If you have a Bible, would you please open it to the end? Let's, let's cheat on the test. Let's look at the answer key. Let's remember how we're going to respond when things go poorly in the already exile, in the wilderness journey. It's on the screen, but it's also on your, in your Bible. I'm reading from the ESV, Revelation 21, 1 through 5. And I tell you, we've, we've, uh, we've probably read this passage a lot at this point in the sermon, but I'm serious. Like I, sometimes I just think if we all were captured by this vision, that we all would know that this interpretation is sure and true. Would it not change our Sunday afternoons and our Monday mornings? Look, Revelation 21, 1 through 5. I'm stalling because I want everyone to read it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And look, look at, the, look at how verse 5 ends in Revelation chapter 21. And he said, Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. Y'all see that? Do you believe it? Do you believe? that this is a reality? That just like Babylon would indeed fall, that there will be a day when the king will return? 
that all decay will be made new and God will make his dwelling place with us and we will no longer live in exile and that we will be home. And do we see that believing in these future things has immediate effect on our lives today? So because of what is to come, therefore, church of the living God, may we not live or be distracted by the temporary things of our exile. May we live lives in private and in public that show the worth of God and not of man. May we live to make the king known who didn't choose, sorry, let me say this again. May we live to make the king known who we didn't choose, but rather who chose and elected us. This King Jesus who in love died for our foolishness of rebellion against God and became our wisdom of God and our righteousness, our sanctification and our redemption. And may we walk today in confidence of this God-revealed vision because it is trustworthy and it is true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would remember these things, not just the testimony of Daniel who was your child and who ran to you and who gave all glory, honor, and praise to you, not just in that testimony, Father, I pray that we would live in light of the trustworthy and true words of your apostle, of your, of your servant John, who wrote these things of what is to come. I pray that we would believe that these things are more sure than anything that we could possibly know about tomorrow. That what is written in the book of Revelation is more sure than the plans that we have made for this week. And Father, as we are captured by that, by your spirit, by by your grace, would let those things come home to our hearts. I pray that our lives, our minds would start to be transformed and renewed, that we would then live a life in private and in public in continual worship of you, that we would no longer point to ourselves and we would say, listen, no man can do these things, only a God in heaven who has revealed himself to us through his word can do these things. We don't stand before you because we are wise. We don't stand before you because we are powerful. We stand before you because of the stone that was cut, not by human hands, but was sent by you in love. We stand before you in confidence because we stand before you in your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray this and all things in the name of Jesus. Amen.